the start of Advent. Uh, I started a new series called Singing Light into Darkness where we're looking at some songs from the Bible and, and tying them into the message of Advent and how it helps prepare us for Christmas. And last week's song was Psalm 137, arguably the, the hardest, darkest psalm in the Bible. And hopefully, and, and the truth of that psalm was confirmed again even this week in San Bernardino, that, that we live in a world riddled with sin. We live in a violent world, uh, a world where evil often seems to win, uh, where might instead of right um, takes, takes precedence, takes power. And so, but hopefully what you heard at the end of last week was that the first message of Advent, the first candle of Advent is the message of hope. That even though we live in a violent, broken, upside-down world, that what Advent tells us is that God, far from letting the world burn, comes into the upside-downness and he makes it right side up. That's what the first coming of Jesus began, and it's what the second coming of Jesus will complete. That far from being hopeless, we have hope because Jesus has come and will come again. But the question we should ask maybe is, why? Why does God do that? Why doesn't God just let the world go? Why doesn't he let the world burn? Why does he enter in to the darkness to bring light? Why does he enter into the upside down to make it right side up? And today's song will give us that answer. So turn with me, if you have not already, to Psalm 107. It would be page 506 if you're using the red pew Bibles. Psalm 107 says this, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. They sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, And he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. They were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. 
Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. They went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright shall see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him consider these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in the time we have this morning, I pray that you would help us to consider your steadfast love. Your steadfast love for your people. What that means for us, Lord, help us to understand it and apply it and live in it. Would you bless the hearing And now the preaching of your word, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you catch it? Why why does God save? Why does God enter into the brokenness, enter into the darkness? What is it that motivates God? It's his love. And the second message of Advent is this, that God saves because God loves And that what Advent reminds us of is that far from being left alone, far from being isolated, we are loved. The redeemed of the Lord are loved. Jesus was sent out of love, right? John 3.16, why does God send his one and only son into the world? To save the world. Why does he want to save the world? Because he loves it. And so... Uh, With that in mind, let's look at Psalm 107. What you hopefully notice there is you have four different pictures of the human condition. Originally, this psalm 
was sung, was written and sung after the Israelites had returned from exile. They had returned from captivity, and so they were rejoicing that God had rescued them from slavery. But you notice how easily these four conditions, how readily they apply not just to the Israelites in slavery, but to, to all of humanity. Just look at, uh, look at these four pictures. The first one is the lost. Verse 4, they wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Uh, so in, in the city, excuse me, in the, in the Bible, right nowadays, and this may even be the reason why you live in Chilton County or why you like living in Chilton County if you do, um, if you do live in Chilton County. Of course, if you live here, you like it. That's not what I meant. Um, it may be that the reason you live here is because you want to get away from the city. All right, we have this kind of desire, like we're campers, we like to get back to nature, all that kind of good stuff. In the Bible, the city, by and large, was a positive thing. Because in the city, you had safety and security and provision. There was food uh, gathered in the city. Uh, water, usually cities were built near the water. And so if you were in the city, that was a good place to be. If you were wandering in the desert, that's not a good place to be. There's no rest out there. There's no food out there. There's no water out there. And so the picture we have of this, of this human condition is that they are, these wanderers have no home, right? A city meant home, that you were safe, that you could rest. These people have no home, no rest. And this is really a picture of us without the Lord, right? Uh, that he is our rest. And so without the Lord, we are without rest. We are without satisfaction. Without him, we are lost. We wander uh, in the wilderness. The second picture we see are the prisoners. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons because they had rebelled against the words of God. And so this, this image is a little bit grittier. Here you have people who are stuck in a dark dungeon, and they have to wear painful shackles. That's what it means when it says in afflictions and in irons. They're having to wear painful shackles. And the reason that they're there, the reason they're trapped, is because they have rebelled against God's word. They have rebelled against God. And so look what he has done. He has bowed their hearts down. With hard labor. Now that that doesn't seem like a very loving thing to do. Why would God make their captivity worse? And He provides the answer. He bows their hearts down with labor. He he pushes down so that they will realize that there is no one else to help them so that they will reach the end of themselves, so that they will cry out. So even though other people have captured them and put them in prison, it's really the Lord who is at work through prison, uh, through this entrapment, enslavement, um, to bring these people low. They have been brought uh, to this painful spot. And perhaps this picture maybe describes you this morning. Do you feel the weight of your own rebellion. Uh, there's something about rebellion that seems freeing to us, that 
I'm going to go my way. I'm going to do my own thing. If, if your story is somewhat similar to mine, when you get the least amount of independence from home, you rebel. Now, that doesn't have to be the case, but for many of you it is. And the, and the thought, the logic is, I will rebel. I will cast off the shackles of my parents or I will cast off the shackles of my church or my tradition or whatever it is, and I will finally breathe the air of freedom. And what happens instead is that we find ourselves in the shadow of death. We we find ourselves bound in painful shackles, heavy, bowed, bowed down with no one to help. That's where the trapped find themselves. Rather than freedom, we keep coming back to the same painful place. So we're lost, we're trapped, and then we're foolish. Verse 17, some were fools. They were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. Now, in the Bible, the word fool doesn't mean stupid. It doesn't mean ignorant. In the Bible, the word fool, are the, it applies to people who either know that the Lord exists but refuse to acknowledge him. So as, to use Paul's language in Romans 1, they suppress the truth. Uh, Psalm 14, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so the fool is one who refuses to acknowledge the truth. She knows the truth. She suppresses it. And because she suppresses the truth, she cannot live in wisdom. She navigates life poorly. You know what that means, to navigate life poorly, to make the same poor decisions again and again and again. And they always get the same results. And here it looks like the fools have gone so far in their rebellion that they've actually made themselves sick. They refuse even to eat. And they brought themselves to the point of death. And if you are or ever have been an addict, you know this feeling. You know what it feels like to be a fool. Because... You know what is good. You know what is right. You know what is healthy. You know what the right decision would be. And yet the the calling of your addiction, right, that, that siren song is too strong. And instead of choosing what is good and right and healthy, you suppress the truth and you wander off into sin and rebellion and foolishness. And you wake up sick, and tired, vowing to never do it again, and yet you find yourself again in that same spot later on. It's common to the human condition. We are lost, we are trapped, we are foolish, and then finally we are overwhelmed. The fourth picture, verse 23, is this picture of sailors who go down, uh, they go down to the sea, they get on their boats to do business, and then God reveals himself. What he actually reveals is his great power. And so I don't know how many of you have spent a lot of time on the ocean, uh, but there are probably few things more terrifying than a storm on the sea. Because it doesn't matter how big your boat is, the waves always get bigger. As impressive as, as, impressive as our engineering skill is in designing huge ships that can travel the sea, 
they are, once they're on the sea, they are dwarfed in comparison by all the water. And so the picture is that God comes along and he brings a storm and it brings the ship up and then it plunges down. And nothing's more terrifying than being on a, a hundred foot or more tall boat and the waves are that much taller than your boat. And that's where these sailors find themselves. Um, so they're overwhelmed. I remember in Boy Scouts, whether it was first aid, emergency preparedness, uh, swimming, or life-saving, there was, there was the first rule. The first rule in any emergency situation is, you know? Well, don't panic. Here we go. You're thinking on the plane with the mask drops. You do need to secure your own mask first. But before you secure your own mask, don't panic. That's always the first rule, right? It's what um, panic, kids, is what you feel when you're in a large crowd and you're really excited and without realizing it, you outran your parents and then you turned around and of all of the tall people around you, none of them had a familiar face. And for that moment, you are panic-stricken. You are terrified, as it describes it here, right? You're at your, your wit's end, literally in the Hebrew. All their wisdom is swallowed up. When you're, when you're panicked, all your wisdom, all of your skill, just doesn't matter anymore. That's where these sailors are. Or parents, when you're in a large crowd and your children outrun you, and all of a sudden you lose sight of them, right? All your wisdom is swallowed up. Uh, and you have that tendency to panic. And what, what's going on here is that in this particular case, the struggle is not so much one of rebellion, but one of smallness. These people are overwhelmed, and we get overwhelmed. We get reminded of how small we are. And we need to be reminded of how small we are because oftentimes we think we're really great until all of a sudden the waves tower overhead and we realize that we are not the ones in control. Uh, and so we are brought to our wit's end. All of our wisdom is swallowed up and we are overwhelmed. And so these are the four pictures of our human condition that Psalm 107 gives us. We are lost. We are trapped. We are foolish. And we are overwhelmed. What does God do about that? How does God meet us? And I hope you see yourself somewhere in one of those four pictures, if not all four. How does God meet us in that? There's four different pictures, and yet there's one constant message of God's steadfast love, right? Look at, uh, look at verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That word steadfast love is repeated in each one of those scenarios. And that, that word for steadfast love is complicated because there's not an exact English equivalent. What that word, it's one word, and what it combines are, are the ideas, the twin ideas of loyalty and love. And so some translations will call this uh, loyal love, God's loyal love. And here's what it means. is one author, and oftentimes what, the way it's translated is kindness or mercy or grace. What it means is that God binds himself in love to his people. And because he has bound himself in love to his people, he acts 
in loyalty towards them, right? This is not a warm, fuzz, steadfast love is not just a, a warm, fuzzy emotion. It is a love that acts. As one author puts it, steadfast love means that God is for his people and he will never cease to be for them. So when we read of God's steadfast love in the Old Testament, I want you to remember that, that it means that God is for his people and he will never cease to be for them. Nothing in their lostness, nothing in their rebellion, nothing in their foolishness, even in being overwhelmed. God never ceases to be for his people. Look at how God's steadfast love is poured out in each, on each condition, in each scenario. You'll notice too, and we'll get to this at the end, that in each scenario, these people who are, uh, who are in distress cry out. And God answers. How does he answer the lost? Verse 7. He leads them by a straight way till they reach a city to dwell in. There's no more, no more rocky paths, no more routes to trip over. There's an expressway straight to the city, straight home where there is security. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. That's a result of God's steadfast love. Verse 8. What about the prisoner? What does God do for the prisoner? And not, not just the prisoner, but the prisoner through rebellion. This person has earned his spot in the prison, and the Lord has brought him low. And it's at the moment that he is brought to his lowest point, when he has reached the end of his rope, that he cries out, and the God of steadfast love responds by doing this. Verse 14. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. What a, what a powerful picture. I don't know if any of you could grab a hold of some iron shackles and rip them apart with your bare hands, but that's the picture that we have here of God breaking the shackles apart out of his steadfast love, verse 15. He shatters the doors of bronze. You ever tried to shatter metal? He cuts in two the bars of iron. What about the fool? Those of us who repeatedly refuse to acknowledge God's wisdom, and so we make the same poor choices again and again. We're brought near to the gates of death. We cry out. And how does God answer us in His steadfast love? He sent, verse 20, he sent out his word. He sent out his word. What better way for the fool to learn wisdom than from the word of God? And notice what effect the word has. It heals. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school during prayer time, that, that healing doesn't just apply to physicality. We're more than physical people. Our foolishness... We talked about addiction, right? Our foolishness may bring physical issues, but there's also emotional issues in there as well, spiritual issues. And what does God do out of his love for the fool? He heals with his word. He heals with his word. What about the overwhelmed, those who are too small? They realize the, the waves are about to drown them. And they cry out, how does the Lord respond in his love to them? Verse 29, he makes the storm be still. 
and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they are glad that the waters are quiet. He brought them to their desired haven. They get home to a safe harbor. In each case, the Lord responds not not to the worthy, not to the strong, not to the people who have it all together. He responds to the lost. He responds to the prisoner. He responds to the fool and to the overwhelmed. People, people who acknowledge their weakness and their inability to help themselves, God moves in love towards them and rescues them for their specific situation. And I hope you see Jesus in each one of those. After all, where will Jesus bring us? Where does Jesus bring us at the end of the Bible? But to the great city of God in Revelation 21 and 22. And what will we have when we get there? Full satisfaction. All of our longings will be met, not by food and drink, but by God himself. Jesus brings us to the city. Jesus brings us home. What about the prisoner? How do we see Jesus as a picture, as an embodiment of God's love to the prisoner? Listen to how Jesus describes his ministry in Luke 4, 18. <clears throat> Borrowing, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus understood his ministry in prophetic terms. He came to set captives free. What about the fool who, he, who hears the healing word? Jesus is God's word in the flesh, John 1. He is the word of wisdom. And surely you see him there in the last where it says he makes the storm to be still. You remember Mark 4, it's a story... Uh, it's not just in Mark 4, it's also in Matthew's Gospel and I believe Luke's as well. It's a story where Jesus and his disciples are making their way in a, in a small fishing boat across the Sea of Galilee. These are experienced fishermen, experienced sailors. Jesus is worn out, so he falls asleep in the boat. And they're making their way and all is calm until all of a sudden a storm comes up on the boat. And these men, these experienced fishermen despair of their very lives, right? They panic. Their, their wits end. All their skill proves ineffective. The boat is about to be swamped. They are overwhelmed. And where is Jesus? He's asleep. Still asleep in the boat. And they cry out. They say, Jesus, don't you care? We're about to drown here. And you remember what Jesus does? He stands up and he looks at the storm and he says, hush, be quiet. And like that, the waves stop and the water is calm. Now, you've at least been close to enough water to realize that those, no wave ever stops automatically. If you've ever seen a storm on the sea, uh, if you've ever just been in a fierce storm, you know that they don't abate automatically. Unless, of course, they're listening to the voice of their creator. The winds stop as soon as they started. And the, and the waves, flat, calm at the voice of Jesus. He is the one who quiets the storm for the overwhelmed. And so, four 
conditions, four pictures of what we're like, one constant message of God's steadfast, loyal love embodied in the person of Jesus, what does all this have to do with Christmas, with Advent, with God's love to us at Advent? Look at verse 33. We're going to see the way that that God shows his love through reversal. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. What you see happening there is that God works against the norm. In, in our world, the norm, the status quo is that the powerful and maybe even so the wicked prosper. It always seems that way, doesn't it? That the wicked always gain the ascendancy and it's always seemed like that to the people of God. And so I would ask you this question. If you were going to save the world, if you were going to fix what you thought was wrong with the world, how would you do it? What would you use? Because our answers typically, typically involve three things. Actually, they all really involve one thing, power. Right? So maybe the answer is the power of might or strength. I would fix the world by finally, by finally being the stronger one and by exerting my strength over everyone else, and in that, the right would win. Or maybe you think wealth. If I just had enough money, if we can just distribute enough money, if enough people can make money, it will fix what is wrong. Why? Because, well, when you have wealth, you have buying power. the, the, The man with wealth has more power than the man without. That's just, a natu- that's, just, that's just a true statement, a true law. It's not negative or positive. It just is. And so we like, to, we like to solve problems through power. Either I need more strength, I need more wealth, or maybe it's education. Because knowledge is power. The people who know more are better off than those who know little. But what the great reversals in the psalm tell us and, and what God tells us throughout the scriptures is he doesn't have to work according to the status quo. In fact, the way that he displays his power is by reversing the trend. He looks at the wicked and he says, you think you have all this stuff? I'm going to take it away. And he looks at the righteous poor who have nothing. And I said the righteous poor on purpose. Poverty is not a blessed condition in and of itself. But oftentimes when the Bible talks about those who are poor, it talks about those who have been oppressed, the righteous who are oppressed by the wicked. He looks at those without any power, without any wealth, and he raises them up. It's Paul's uh, logic in 1 Corinthians where God uses the foolishness uh, of the gospel to shame the wise, where God uses the weakness of the gospel to shame the strong. God does not have to work according to the status quo. He actually flips it on its head. And that is nowhere more apparent than in Bethlehem. How would you save the world? How would you bring the Messiah into the world? We like to think we would do it maybe the Washington, D.C. way. 
halls of power, the son of a nobleman, something like that. But how does God save the world? He approaches a a poor virgin and her fiancé, her working class fiancé. He sends them to this little out-of-the-way town called Bethlehem. Only, Only famous, if it could be even called famous, only famous because King David just happened to be from there once upon a time. And it's in that little out-of-the-way town to this uh, poor couple who had no clue or had very little clue just how significant they were in the history of the world. And And not only that, they have no family in that town, so they have no one to stay with. The hotel is full. There is no vacancy. And so this poor virgin girl is forced to give birth to her first baby, in a barn. And it's not this tidy picture that the nativity scene usually imagines for us. I imagine those swaddling claws were pretty nasty. Uh, As we're, we're going to a concert tonight called Behold the Lamb, and one of the songs from that concert is It Was Not a Silent Night. Or Labor of Love is the name of the song. Labor of Love. It's a beautiful song. And, and one of the first uh, verses says, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. Right? Th- this woman was giving birth in a barn. And she wrapped her baby up in some dirty rags. And she laid him in a feeding trough. That's, that's how God saves the world. That's how God reverses the status quo and brings salvation to the lost, to the trapped, to the foolish, and to the overwhelmed. And he does it out of his love because he loves. God saves because he loves. How do we respond to that? There's a couple of ways here in the psalm. The first is if you're a skeptic, if you would say, I'm not a Christian... The first thing, uh, the, the, the only response you have is that you must realize your condition and cry out. Repeated four times, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. You cannot be rescued without crying out. So if you're a skeptic this morning, I invite you to the God of love to cry out to him. And then if you are, a Christian, if you are, as, uh, as the psalm says, one of the redeemed, one of those who has been bought out of the hand of the enemy, your response is worship. Give thanks. Respond with thanksgiving. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Sing songs of joy. Offer sacrifices of thanks. Giving. If you, are, if you are redeemed, that means your life belongs now to your Redeemer. And your response to His love is a life of worship and reciprocal love. Giving generously, singing joyfully, that is, that is what our response is meant to be in the face of redeeming love. Either we cry out and ask for it, or we have received it and we give thanks for it. Let's pray.
Lord in heaven, we could not come close to plumbing the depths of your great love, nor, nor could we ever. You, told, you, you tell us in Deuteronomy, you, you told the Israelites that you loved, not because they were worthy of being loved, but you loved because you love. You love your elect simply because you love, and we cannot, we cannot dig any further beyond that, only to know that there is a deep well of loyal love for those you love, and that you will stop at nothing. You will break through our chains. You will break through our foolishness. You will rescue us from the stormy seas because you love. It's what you did in Bethlehem. And it's what you will do on the last day. Lord, as we go to the table, help us to love, to see love, to understand in some measure love, and to love in return. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.